my prayer is that um, not only do you know more about uh, the book of, of John and perhaps some of the, the more um, scholarly or academic aspects, it just kind of oozes out. I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm a pastor scholar, so uh, I can't really open my mouth and, get, and not get interested in one particular point or another. And, um, and so I, I hope that even those have been uh, spiritually uh, enlivening because it really has been my desire not so much to, to tell you things that are interesting, but to invite us to presence. Um, and to the degree that I'm self-aware enough to be present, courageous enough, I, I hope that you have felt that. And, and I have, as I have uh, been with you this, this weekend, I have felt uh, your presence as well sometimes interpersonally, but always um, in your eyes and in your attention and in your interests. So um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm totally blessed. And as I began, I, I read the proverb um, that uh, it's, it's the good uh, person who is the one to which you tell what you know. And, uh, and you know, uh, I don't know a lot, but I know a few things, and you've been just a a pleasure to uh, to be receptive um, and uh, and hopefully um, transformed by your um, by your experience of being with Yeshua through the Gospel of of John to the degree that uh, through words uh, that can be uh, invited into uh, that's that's as that's as much as I can do um, invite um, myself often what you preach is what you need to hear. Um, and, and that the invitation has actually been the thing that has, that has allowed uh, Jesus's, Yeshua's presence to be uh, a, a, a reflection, a conscious reflection of something that you perhaps have pursued. Um, it is, it is uh, I, I suppose, very uh, adequate, or no, appropriate, adequate perhaps, you'll have to decide that at the end, but certainly appropriate that uh, the last uh, sort of talk, uh, call it a sermon perhaps, uh, just don't call it an academic uh, uh, sort of lecture. Um, this last is, is really the, the culmination of uh, Yeshua's presence with his um, disciples before he again is present with them um, in the post-resurrection narratives, which uh, I wish we actually had one more um, session because I would love to take us into those scenes of, uh, of Thomas because um, they're very graphic in terms of uh, Yeshua's physical wounded presence. Um, so maybe I'll just make this comment and, and it'll suffice. I, what I have appreciated about, about uh, reflecting on those very uh, personal, again, presence-oriented in, in accounts of Yeshua's uh, resurrected uh, body in, in presence with his disciples. What, what marks uh, John's presentation, even with respect to the things that are similar with the, the synoptic Gospels, let alone those things that are unique, and the scene with Thomas is one of those unique stories that of the 90% that aren't that is not in the synoptics but the way in which you have resurrected Yeshua inviting a a a uncertain 
you know, doubting is probably uh, uh, has this negative or pejorative um, uh, label. And I think instead of thinking of it as, you know, this guy just, you know, doesn't get it, or or he's, you know, he's not, you know, this uh, this sort of certain disciple, as if any of the other people and other disciples were any more certain. Uh, I think we need to be more sympathetic, empathetic to this. To this person, uh, Thomas, um, he may be kind of half glass half full kind of guy. Uh, which uh, chapter seven, you know, he's the guy that says, you know, when Jesus says, "I need to go to Jerusalem," he's like, "Okay, we'll go with you, and we'll all die," you know, kind of kind of thing. And you know, but he's there. You know, he's he's not he's not uh, he's not checking out. But but really, the the thing that uh, that is so gripping, uh, so powerful to me, is the wounded, resurrected Yeshua. Uh, Yeshua's body in his resurrection is not without evidence of woundedness. So much so that he invites a disciple who is struggling with the realities around him that he's perceiving. He invites that disciple to touch, to put his hand into Yeshua's resurrected body. Um, the, The contact, the presence, even in the resurrected body, is, is just so intimate. Thomas, put your hand in my wounded side. Feel the wound of my self-giving. Um, it's just so, so tactile, so concrete, uh, so far from some sort of um, nary-fairy, transcendental gospel that we so often hear. Um, and then the fact that, man... This is so powerful to me. The fact that in the resurrection, Yeshua's resurrected body continues to have the evidence of his wounds. Um, Nicholas von Zinzendorf was uh, sort of is known as the uh, as the one who created a place called Herrenhut, um, to which to which many exiles of of uh, of uh, Christian faith fled. Uh, he had a large property as aristocrat, and uh, he, he. Some of you will know he's the basically the founder of the Moravians, uh, this Pietistic movement that ended up being so uh, significant that um, uh, John and Charles Wesley visited, that gave them the inspiration to begin in Oxford the the movement of Methodism of creating a way of being that has become. The Methodist Church, and of course, you know, unfortunately, except for rare occasions, that that um, denomination has probably lost the the vision. But um, Nicholas von Zinzendorf wrote over a thousand hymns, and the thing that was both uh, critiqued in the sense that sort of the the wider Christian institution just didn't feel comfortable with, but at the same time drew so many people was his emphasis on the on the wounded God, the God of wounds, um, who in the resurrection did not lose his, his woundedness. And, and you know, uh, what is so radical, and I'm sorry this is, was not really the, the part of the, it's not part of like the, the sermon about uh, the advocate, but I just find it, um, I, gotta, I just find the, the Spirit moving me to talk about this that uh, it invites us to think about uh, our bodies 
and what we will bring into the resurrected body. Um, what will our resurrected body be? Um, and if, if Yeshua's resurrected body is any indication of what resurrected bodies will look like and be like, then we need to rethink what resurrection means for our bodies. Um, I would assume that you're not unlike me, and I grew up and thought for a very long time that when God makes all things new, my body will no longer reveal the story that I lived. Um, that in some way all of my harm that was done to me by evil uh, will uh, be erased. Um, and this is both uh, externally, I think I've ever talked about this, but some of you will have surely recognized I have a, I have a red dot on the end of my nose. Um, and if you haven't looked carefully on the tea, to- or the tea time, see that shows you how, how uh, Britishly oriented I am. But a- afterwards, you know, just take a look. I have a red dot on my nose because when I was six years old, I was, I was bitten by my dog uh, who, who for, with whom I was teasing with a, do- with a steak bone when you were allowed to let dogs eat steak bones. Um, and, and more than that, it was an outside dog. And so, like, that was the time when you could actually keep your dog outside in the middle of winter um, and not be called, you know, uh, or reported. Um, that's another side note. But, but uh, she bit the end of my nose off, and um, they took skin from the back of my ear, and there's a scar there, and uh, put it on my nose. And the plastic surgeon did an amazing job, but the skin never ended up uh, turning this color. But, but in a sense, am I, in that, am I going to be then... I'm going to have a, a nose like I was supposed to have, you know, or I did have until the age of six. Um, the emotional uh, uh, scars of, of my, my story of being um, marred by the evil one uh, in terms of things that can't be seen by eyes but are, are deeply uh, embodied um, neurologically, um, emotionally, will, will all those things be erased? And, and I think, you know, there's this sort of, as in the classical period when, when uh, statues uh, of ancient Greek and Roman times were discovered and they were this white, pristine marble, and the sort of the Germans in their sort of um, uh, quest for uh, the, the originals, they sort of assumed that these were this is what they looked like. These, it was these pristine white statues of, of, you know, in the Greek style of beauty and, and strength. And, and they were unaware that uh, the reason they were white is not because they weren't painted, but because by that time all of the paint had, had, uh, had disappeared. And so, the, so it's called the classical period. You might have not known this because uh, it was a... a a misunderstanding that uh, Greek and early Roman uh, art, architecture and, and aesthetic was just white, um, when in reality it was multicolored. And if you ever had the chance to go to Herculaneum, which is uh, very near Pompeii, uh, which has been preserved uh, because of the eruption of Vesuvius in uh, the late first century, uh, you can see how painted in graphic, beautiful, bright colors uh, the, the world was. And so 
I think that philosophically and, and, and imaginatively, our vision of, of a restored body is this pristine statue with no uh, chips, completely white, which is also interesting. The resurrected body is white. Isn't that a little offensive? Um, but that was the European exceptionalism of the, you know, of the 18th, 19th century. My point is, how do you imagine what resurrection will mean for you? And is it as concrete and as, um, as evidently wounded as your body is now, only, uh, only now those wounds are, are trophies of grace uh, because they don't... They no longer shape who you are and your identity, but they do reveal the story that has been redeemed by the very wounds of Jesus. So, I mean, uh, I just think, um, boy, that's powerful. Um, that uh, the new heavens and the new earth, the resurrected bodies are not white. Uh, they're ethnic, and they reveal our story. story of living in a, in a world in, inhabited by and, and uh, in a way um, ruled by an evil one who's seeking to take away our, our image bearing. But in doing so, when we are redeemed, how much more will we worship uh, the God who redeemed us because we have those, those, uh, those monuments of redemption? Um, so, boy, you know, just reflecting on a very, um, a very well-known scene of the doubting Thomas, when we when we really, really uh, reflect on its on its theological significance, it has tremendous transformative power that puts our stories, the stories of our body, that include skin color as well as. Uh, um, uh, the geography in which our ethnicity is related, although being perhaps exilic in that sense, uh, yet nevertheless defined, and then the wounds that we carry also coming into the resurrection. Um, there's just something beautiful about that. And, and uh, I don't want a body that, I, that doesn't... As I've reflected on this, I, it, it does me no, no good as a human being to be given a body that doesn't reflect my own humanity. Um, now restored so that I can be thankful and worship the God who healed me but did not erase me. Healed me but did not erase me. Um, we could say amen and leave, I guess, at that point. <laughs> and, and maybe have a lunch a little earlier this afternoon. But, um, but in any case, uh, thank God for bringing me to the thought of that um, because uh, it could be the case that that's the most significant thing that has been said over this, uh, over this weekend. But I think I was making the point uh, before I was, you know, ADD distracted that, uh, ADHD actually because I'm hyper too, but um, uh, that, that we are kind of in that last uh, stage that is in, in uh, very much for John is moved forward in his narrative presentation. Um, it may not have occurred to you, um, because perhaps you know the, 
the gospel stories so well that when when John again structures his story, the 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 not the historical chronological time, but the narrative time, which is different. You've got historical chronology, but then you have how a storyteller takes you through the actual time. And and just as it illustrated, how many years do you imagine these first 10, 12 chapters? Um, you know, three Passovers. How long does that take? <laughs> uh, well, you do the math. Um, you celebrate Passover. You should know as well as anyone. And then we come to the middle, the middle of the Gospel of John. And for five chapters, I'm counting right, Henry, correct me, um, we are in one evening. One evening. That is half of the ten chapters of Yeshua's public witness, the witness characterized by the immerser. Um, The immerser, John, is significant because he bears witness, which is, I didn't mention this directly, but so just listen, you don't have to to look at it, but in chapter 1, John the Baptist uh, argues that his, his witness is... Uh, and why he's baptizing with water is that he might be revealed, the Messiah might be revealed to Israel, which goes somewhat to my point yesterday that the Gospel of John, while not disinterested in a world beyond the Jewish world, is nevertheless a Gospel that means and intends to tell Israel that Yeshua is for them. Um, uh, John the Immerser's Witness is for Israel, to Israel. Um, and, and so, as, as we said the first night, he stands sort of as the paradigmatic witness of the first half of John's gospel, while the beloved disciple takes the role here in the middle of the story in the upper room discourse. So two things I want you to notice about the narrative, the beauty of his narrative art is he slows, he, so he, he rushes to slow down. Takes three years, puts it into ten chapters, takes a night and puts it into five chapters. There's a difference between chronological time and narrative time. And the difference has to do with what the, the narrator wants to focus on. And we can uh, very easily connect to this when we're telling an event to someone and we want to really talk about this element, we have to present a, a, a narrative that, that will make sense of this. But this is really what we want to talk about. Well, we've got we've to move somebody so they can know the significance of what I really wanted them to know. That's exactly what you have in narrative time. Time is the, is the possession of the narrator, how they want to structure the story. Um, and I guess, just as a narrative critic that I am, there is a difference between chronology and narrative time, which is an important observation because when we want to think about history and the Gospels, we need to understand that there's a difference and that a, that a narrator is not beholden in his story to a, a real chronology. The chronology for a narrator is, is moldable, is, is, is flexible, depending on what scenes he wishes 
to focus on. And I think that's something that can get us very, very far to understand some of these distinctions that we at least uh, mentioned yesterday, that uh, the, the sequence of these what appear to be very historical narratives, uh, in effect, do not demand that the story is told in a chronologically sort of specific way. Um, the author here has gone, has run a sprint, and now he's he's taken a a stroll. Um, and and the implication of this is that uh, John is interested in the end more than he's interested in the beginning. As important as the witness of the immerser, more important is the witness of the beloved disciple in his role of bearing witness to the intimacy that is available to the one who's willing to lay in the bosom of the Messiah, um, who is the one who's not accidentally there, but is intentionally there, willingly there, um, passionately there, would wish to be nowhere else. The one who stands first in the line so they can be the first to buy the latest um, uh, Xbox on Black Friday that actually begins at 10 o'clock on Thursday. And the reason I know that is last Christmas I was in that line. And I got there as early as I could, but there were people that started at, you know, 8 o'clock that morning to stand in that line. And, uh, but but it's, the, it's, the, it's the sense that it's not the person that's sort of, I'll wait till the, till the airplane is emptied and, and that'll be easier for me to get off, mixing my metaphors, which when you're married to a flight attendant, that sort of is the best strategy. So if you haven't thought about this, just stay seated. Don't be one of those ones that they can't go anywhere and you get out of the, you get out of the seat and you're just like standing there, you know, and like this in front of somebody, you know, and it's like, sit down. You're not going to get off the plane any faster. It's like, come on, man. I don't want to look at your butt for 20 minutes. I mean, I don't know what possesses people to do these kinds of things. Like, but sometimes somebody has to catch a flight. And so the flight attendants will even say, we have some passengers who, who have a connection that they need to get out. Would you, would you give people the space to kind of run out first? Um, they want to be the first off this plane, the first to, to get into the terminal. Again, ironically, that doesn't stop people from getting up and in their way. Um, but, but I guess that's like the, the beloved disciple is beloved because it's not coincidental that he's always there. Um, at the foot of the cross, Peter could have been there. Uh, any of the others, save Judas, could have been there, but it, it wasn't any of them other than the beloved disciple to whom Yeshua on the cross said, uh, uh, disciple, uh, my mother, my mother, disciple. Um, and there was then a pronouncement of familial relationship um, from the, the cross. Why? Um, because he was there. Um, that's one of the sort of biggest takeaways, I think, about the beloved disciple. Um, he's not a witness of preparation, a witness from a distance, a witness who's, who's uncertain, even the, who is the, I, is the one who is this Lamb of God. John at one point says, I did not know him until the Spirit uh, elided on him, even though, interestingly, 
the book of John doesn't record the baptism of Jesus. It assumes it, which is kind of strange. A number of times, the Gospel of John assumes its, its readers know the tradition, whether, whether it's they, they have another gospel or they just know the story. Jesus was baptized. The, uh, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, came and rested on him. John just says, John the Baptist did not know who he was until that moment. So in a way, the Baptist is a, is a distant um, prepper, pre, uh, preparer of the way of Yeshua, Messiah. The beloved disciple is the one in that that testifies as the intimate of Yeshua. Um, both are necessary, but there is something of a, of a priority of the one whose testimony is at the side of Jesus, which just uh, brings up a whole load of questions, like how, does, how, do, how do the other Gospels use John the Baptist's role? Because the author of this Gospel wishes John the Baptist's role to serve a narrative agenda. Again, history, narrative. And the Baptist's role is, is secondary because the Baptist says, I must decrease while he must increase, and because he's, his witness is contained, in a sense, in a smaller sort of unit, narratively speaking. Whereas the Beloved disciple, his witness is, uh, lingers uh, with Yeshua to the end. He's at the end, he's at the beginning. He's in chapter 13, he's in chapter 21. Bookended, as we've looked at the other day. Um, it seems like 10 years ago, but it was just two night, two, two evenings. Um, um, in any case, um, the point that we want to underscore, besides those very interesting, you might call them, um, more academic observations that have significant um, um, hermeneutical power. We understand the text better. But what we get then is this section uh, that, that is the, the movement of glory, glorification of, of Messiah um, in his death and resurrection. This is this is the, 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 the point to which everything else has been um, directed uh, uh, very, uh, very intentionally. Um, and, and so as we move closer to that, the scenes get more intimate and more intimate. And it's the end, and we are coming to the end. So it just all sort of worked out as if you know, some sovereign had, uh, had put this talk together, this, this series of talks. And I don't mean me. Um, I didn't really appreciate the. Uh, I just was picking. I was picking themes that I thought were powerful, and here we are, the last meeting together, thinking about the last phase. Um, that's that's always so surprising. Although I shouldn't be, when you know you come in as a guest preacher, and the worship uh, uh, ministry has no idea what you're going to preach, but as soon as you finish, they give the exact song that that is that is the the re, re, sort of the response to the point of the sermon. It's like, wow, how did that happen? We had no, it's not like we coordinated, you know, um, uh, uh, khakis and plaids because it happened to be, or I, I love this, I went to a church where on Easter everybody sort of wore pastels, you know, on Christmas everybody wore, you know, reds and greens. 
a little hokey, but you know, aesthetically it looks nice. Uh, but there was no, there's just, God is involved, is what I'm saying, in, in this, this event. Um, and that is super encouraging to me, because if it were about me, you would be laughing a bit, um, because I have something of a sense of humor, and perhaps you'd be entertained by my, you know, animated um, way of speaking, but you would not be transformed or changed. It would just be, well, that was fun. Um, and my prayer is that it's more than that. And you can see then in chapter 20, uh, 13, so if you begin to come to a more um, uh, paced, um, um, more uh, quiet, uh, intentionally uh, slowed, where you're thinking of, of your breathing in through the nose and out the mouth, you're just trying to be. That's, that's the posture of this section. Let's just read the introduction that the narrator gives us because it's just so well posits this or positions this. Verse 1, It was just before the Passover festival. Yeshua knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and to go to the Father. See, that's what the death and resurrection meant for Yeshua. In a way, of course, it had an atonement element to it that Yeshua is dying in order to provide atonement for our sins. Uh, but in, in fact, in, in John, it's, it's, a, it's a secondary sort of, sort of tone. It's, it's, again, like in U2, you know, <laughs> you have sort of a, a, uh, a back kind of uh, loop that the edge has created that then he layers with, with something else. And so it becomes... The something else that you, that you see with something that's sort of just looping that you might have even noticed. That's the, that's the creativity of, of making music. It's, at least, I don't, make, I don't play the guitar. Um, I don't have rhythm. I've tried many times. Because you you're not supposed to be a youth pastor if you can't play the guitar. So I became a youth pastor, not able to play the guitar, tried to learn the guitar, could easily you know, move my fingers and hold them, but I could not keep a rhythm. So I'd always kind of get the band off, off rhythm because I couldn't sort of follow it. Anyway, um, but I do appreciate, as I've learned, that the, the textures and the layers of a song um, bring its fullness out, bring, bring its sort of depth of emotion out, right? Um, and, and so atonement is in the, in the sort of the, the, the rhythm that's behind and, and sustaining, but, but the death and resurrection of Yeshua in John is the glorification of and the, and the, the, um, the, re, uh, the re, uh, introduction no, like the, the, the uh, what would you say the you know it's like when, when, the, when a soldier comes home from being out on a, on a, um, on a mission um, that particularly like a sailor who's out for six months. And, and you've maybe seen, you know, one of these, you know, uh, surprise, you know, um, introductions where, where the family doesn't know, you know, that, that, the, that the, the, the husband or the wife uh, is, is going to show up. And it's like this, this re, uh, reunited sort of power of, uh, of a son, a, a spouse who, uh, or a daughter who has, who has come back home. And, and, and in, that is the, the nature of 
uh, Yeshua's death and resurrection. It's the, it's the reunion of the Father and the Son. The Father sent the Son. The Son is away from the Father. Uh, the Son is enacting the will of the Father um, in a distant place. He is the representation of the Father in a foreign land. And His longing, perhaps you know this because you've lived as an expat, or you've served your time in a, in a, in a branch of the, of the military, and you know that ache of being away from home, of being in a foreign place that, that just cannot bring that peace and that, that uh, settledness because it's not your home. Um, and when you come home, you are re- reunited and there is this like ex- exhaling of all of, the, all of the tension that both conscious and unconscious. And, and, the, and the scene that, we, that, that we're to paint of the, of the death and resurrection is the reunion of the of, the, of a father and a son. How, how sweet that makes Yeshua's death. How, how, uh, how intense of a, of a loving uh, embrace that is the interpretation of Yeshua's death and resurrection. Uh, how, how counterintuitive it is to think that Yeshua's death and resurrection is not actually something of a sacrifice but is in fact what he's longed for the whole time he's been on the earth. And remember, John doesn't open up with a scene of, of Yeshua's birth. It's a scene of his eternal relationship as one who is God, but with God. Same, unified, but distinct. And I, in a way, I love... Um, uh, the Orthodox, the, the sort of the orth, not, not small O, but big, large O, big capital O, and their reading of, of Genesis where they distinguish likeness and image. Now, I'm not sure I, I, I agree with the exegesis that gets there, but it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's, we, are, we are made in the image of God, the familial sort of clear, uh, you know, you... You're a chip off the old block. Or as we were talking about, you have the same toes, the same feet. Ask, ask uh, Henry about that. But um, I was just talking about my, my kids, and uh, you'll, this is more information than you want to know, but, but I've got longer feet and longer toes. I always think they're, they're you know, the nicer kind of feet, you know, uh, to, if, there, if there is a, such a kind. And my daughter has the longer fingers that, I, that come from my family, the longer toes. She just, she just has, her feet are really pretty, I think. I'd say so myself. My wife, on the other hand, she's stubby. I mean, her fingers are short and her toes are like, you know, sort of, and I don't mean fat in a pejorative way because she's not fat, but like they're just stubby, so they, they look thicker. Uh, in a way, they're, they're cute, but they're not, they don't have the, like, the beauty of length. Okay, this is just my perception, I'm sure. She doesn't feel that way, uh, although we ta- have talked about it uh, quite a bit, and, and she does agree. She does agree with me. Uh, but my son has her, her, her kind of toes, her kind of fingers, and, and even at 11 years old, it's obvious. So, so it's, there's an image that clearly you know, marks humans as in the image of God, but the likeness 
of humans is, is something that they develop into. So the Orthodox see this, the, the, the Genesis account more generously than, um, than d- does the Protestant account or the Western account. And in my, my view, by the way, for what it's worth, at least on this issue, and I've got a lot of problems with Orthodox uh, 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 sort of uh, takeover of Jewish uh, traditions, but in this case, it seems to me that it's more consistent with the generosity of Jewish tradition with respect to the so-called fall, uh, particularly in ap- apocalyptic literature. The problem with the earth and, huma- and, and the world is not so much the human the consequences of human failure acknowledges that, but it doesn't have near the consequence of angelic transgression. So the, the angels who were, were given the job to, to keep the, 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 the earth uh, in, in perfect harmony, you know, they bring out the stars, they, they move the sun from here to there, they, they, they release the rain, um, uh, they you know, the apocalyptic mind takes us into the, into the sort of the, the, the machinery, if you will, of, of how creation works. And, and so it's sort of like throwing, you know, the proverbial monkey wrench into the, into the machine, and therefore it kind of gets all bound up and no longer can provide the kind of environment that will cause humans to flourish. There's, there's a great text in, uh, in, a, in a document called Enoch, um, that suggests that the angelic world introduced essentially all the, the evil that is the experience of humans. And it, li- it lists some of these things. Witchcraft, warfare, and makeup. Makeup. Stuff that, you know, even, even men put on. Um, um, the, the way, yeah, I don't know why that's, that's seen as, as, the, uh, as the introduction of evil into the world, but uh, uh, that's, that's the past. I, that was supposed to be uh, like not only true, but funny. And so I only got a very, very brief, maybe you were so startled that, you know, witchcraft, warfare, and then cosmetics. It's like, which one doesn't fit in the list? Uh, warfare. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but... Uh, but the point is that from early Jewish perspectives, uh, humans are as much a victim as they are the, 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 the uh, instigator. And, and so in this sense, going back to the Orthodox thing, uh, you have then a, a, a view of humanity that, that has the image of God that is, that is just clear and never, and never, uh, and never uh, you know, uh, depraved, like total, total depravity in a, in a Protestant way. But it, it's, it's visible, it's consistent, it's not ever lost. But what is the problem is the, there was, a, there was a, 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 um, a premature stoppage of the movement to likeness, a maturity to likeness. And so the so-called fall has such a more has has so much more a sense of here are children, adolescents who had no idea with whom they were they were dealing when when Satan in the form of a serpent tempted them. It was more an issue of experience, lack of experience, than it was willful transgression. Uh, the Orthodox tradition in 
contrast to the Protestant one, doesn't see Adam and Eve as fully formed moral agents, but rather like middle school students who know enough to get into trouble but have no clue the consequences, which is essentially my son. Um, you know, if you, if you take something from somebody uh, so that you have what you don't have, uh, that actually is, it may feel like that's the shortcut to getting what you want, but, but, the, but the consequence is, is not so good. You know, it's like, okay, I got what I wanted, but the unintended consequence was I stole it. But he had, didn't happen to realize that at the time. Um, and so uh, when we uh, think about the, the, this, this uh, statement in chapter 13, going back there, that the world is somewhere that Yeshua does not fit, but is there on mission. He was sent. But when he gets, his ultimate goal is to get out of Dodge and get home. That is a very different way of thinking about the cross, about what is the significance of Jesus' Yeshua's death and resurrection. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but um, it, is a, it is a rather uh, uh, sig- significantly different uh, perspective on the resurrection from the synoptics, which, for example, Matthew records that, that in a very straightforward atonement that Yeshua gives his life for the forgiveness of sins. It may be implied here, but you never have a statement about that in John. It's always about reunion. That's why I brought up the, you might be thinking, why did he go down the Orthodox Protestant route? Well, it was because when you know sort of some different perspectives, it then changes how you might read, you know, the, the fall, so to speak. Um, it, it changes the whole, the whole structure of, of humans' relationship to, to, to God. It, it is generous. It is, it is developmentally appropriate, you might say. Um, it doesn't ask children to be adults and to act as adults, uh, which is perhaps what is, to me, so beautiful about that is, you know, humans don't know what they don't know because they're humans. How can we blame ourselves for not perceiving a consequence that we would have no way of even imagining that would happen? And yet afterwards, we're like, oh, I should have known that better. I should have made a different decision. Well, yeah, but... You didn't have an imagination about what might be the consequence because you didn't know what you don't know. Why do we beat ourselves up so badly for decisions that we make that in retrospect weren't so good but we would have had no idea any other process? I, I just, it's like we beat ourselves up so much over things that we had so little control over. That's free. That's just an aside like what I think. Um, um, we got through one verse, so let's keep going. Have, you know, you can imagine if I'm an ex if I was an expository preacher, uh, it wouldn't just take me, how many, how many years have you been working through, uh, what is it? Yeah, a long time, but, but if you were me and I was you, I mean, you would never, it would be your whole career trying to get through, you know, a chapter. Uh, but nevertheless, the richness of, of these connections, I just think are, are worth noting, the, the wide sort of spectrum of implications that that uh, re, recalibrating, re, re invi- revisioning kind of realities that we take for, take for granted. I mean, seriously, has, you don't have to raise your hands, but have we, have, has anyone ever considered that the, 
that the, that the cross death of Yeshua and his resurrection is actually this beautiful reunion that would be like a soldier coming home from a long tour. I mean, who thinks that way? I mean, I have never until I started seriously reflecting on, on, on John. Um, even though I'm most, I was most familiar with John growing up, we read John like we read like the synoptics rather than reading John on John's sake. I was having a couple conversations this week, weekend that, you know, uh, at times we, we felt the need to bring in something from another gospel to fill in a, a, uh, an absence and my, my, my um, response was, well, that is good, but it's, it's out of order. You have to appreciate the, the literary narrative um, uh, sort of structure and story of the, of the one. And once you get that, then you can bring in these horizontally other gospel accounts to kind of give it depth. But if we don't live in the, in the narrative that is before us, we, ha- we miss the, the, the things that John wants us to catch. For example, in the, in the man born blind story, that, that sense of transition or lack of from, from being blind spiritually to becoming a disciple courageous enough to demonstratively, demonstratively embodied witness that always brings suffering. I mean... If you, if you just kind of brought in Isaiah from, from John the Baptist's question of Jesus as he's imprisoned, are you really the one that was to come? Did I do something that I'll regret at the end? And Yeshua says, well, what does the prophet say? And, you know, uh, Isaiah 35, I believe, uh, that's the passage, says that, that in the, in the resta- restoration of all things, the blind will see, the lame will walk, the dead will be raised. Well, of course, that's in John. Well, it, it probably is, but it, it wasn't the interest of John in telling his story to, to, to mark that out. It was, it was his desire to have the ambiguity that creates a bit of instability or dis, disorientation so that we then have to kind of like use our imaginations and be, entering, be entered and invited into the story. So... Um, Let's be, let's be careful in, in, in our reading here to uh, ever to kind of uh, just pull in stuff without first kind of appreciating the thing in front of us. Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's worth noting that uh, many scholars and pastors and Christians just bring their own definition of world here. Um, there's a broader conversation, but it's worth noting that world means world depending on how it's used. <laughs> um, the world of Messianic Judaism is not the whole world. <laughs> In fact, it's a very small world, but it's still a world. Um, and so when we read the word world, for God so loved the world... The world can only mean what it means in the way the author uses it. And so we were saying over breakfast, Marcy, Chris, and I, that, that we need to be careful to not to just look at, up the dictionary of a, of a biblical word and think, oh yeah, this list is sort of like 
You know, we can pick any one of those things because you have to read words within the framework of the way the author is using them. So the point, just really straightforwardly, is there are times in John where he's speaking of the world in like cosmic sense. But more often than not, he's talking about the world of Judea in the first century, this particular world. Like when, the, when uh, the resurrection, after the resurrection of Lazarus, the religious leaders say, the whole world is following after Jesus, after Yeshua. Well, is it really? Is it really the case that uh, the West and the East, let alone the, natives, the native um, peoples of North and South America, um, Australia, the Aborigines, are they all aware that what is happening in Judea has cosmic consequences. I mean, ridiculous. Absolutely insanity. And yet, we, you know, that's how most Christians read John. World means world, and that's all it means. Um, these are soapboxes. I'm sorry, I have to say these things. Um, I can't just let the word go by and not comment that there's a problem here. Not, for, not perhaps for us, but for those who are so disconnected from the context within which these were written, that we just put in whatever definition we wish to give. Constant hermeneutical advice. He loved his own. The evening meal was, to, was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Again, there it is. So he got up from the evening meal, he took off his outer cloth, wrapped the towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And after some particularly, particularly sort of uh, awkward and perhaps humorous exchanges between Yeshua and Peter... Yeshua finally gets to the point in verse 14, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should watch one another's feet. I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done. Um, of course, there are denominations, traditions that take this in a very literal way. The Brethren, for example, they see this as an ordinance of the, of, of the church just like the institution of the Lord's Supper. So this is something that Yeshua commanded. And, you know, uh, it's not as if there's not merit to that. I mean, you got it in the text, right? So why aren't we, you know, every, every, every time we gather, maybe even more so in a Messianic Jewish um, congregation, because <laughs> this is clearly a, a, a Jewish meal, um, why aren't, you know, why aren't, aren't we always, you know, including that tradition? Well, I think it's quite, um, it would be quite clear to you if you understood that this, that this story of the washing of the feet, do as I have done, uh, is actually foreshadowing the cross death of Yeshua. The model of, of, of putting oneself willingly to the point of washing one another's feet, which was, in a sense, the lowest, lowest of positions to serve one another in this context. That, that, that 
that example, that, that paradigm of self-giving is a way of framing the cross-death of Yeshua. Um, and so he's inviting, he's inviting his disciples to live an ethic of self-death for the other with the knowledge that self-death is not, is not anything other than reun- reunion with the Father and the Son. The, the invitation and the prayer of Yeshua is, as we are one, so may they be one with us. And, and the, the, again, a counterintuitive upside-downness of John's understanding of Yeshua's death is that it is reunion. When we follow the ethic of death, it means reunion for us with the intimacy of the triune God. So powerful. It's not self-death for its sort of sake. Aren't I a good follower of Yeshua? I am one who, you know, gets my teeth kicked in. I, I'm the one who's the doormat. Aren't I spiritual? I don't know if you know the, anyone know the Enneagram. It's, this is like a t- typical two. It's like the one who does all of these things and then then quietly simmers because nobody says thank you. And so, so a two in the Enneagram is the, is the, is the one who's most service-oriented, but also the, the most bitter because people aren't paying attention. Um, I would say that's probably the, the, uh, the most invited person to serve in the congregation <laughs> are twos who do everything but are... Uh, you know, steaming inside because they're not getting recognized. It's, it's the need of a congregation for, for uh, volunteers that invite uh, uh, someone like this to, to serve, but then when the credit is not recognized, it, is, uh, it becomes a, a curse in a way. Um, that's not what Yeshua is inviting us to take this in this. He's, he's inviting us to see in, our, in his death and in our cross death, it actually is to our greatest good, the reunion of connection with the Messiah, the Father, the Ruach, the Spirit, which is where we want to turn now. Um, because when we move into the, the upper room more carefully, more, more thoughtfully, we discover that Yeshua is, is, is leaving and being united with the Father, but in that unification or that united, reunited uh, 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 point, a huge benefit comes to his disciples in the, in the person of the comforter or the advocate, the encourager. Um, and the framework where we meet the encourager, the advocate, the comforter, is in chapter 14 on the, on the heels of this acknowledgement that, that Yeshua knows that there'll be, there'll be uh, sorrow, there'll be grief, hearts will be troubled when Yeshua leaves. And he says in verse 1, but you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, mansions in the um, the King James Version, which made me think, I'm going to be living high on the hog when I go to heaven. Because then, Revelation tells me there are going to be streets of gold. I'm going to be living in a mansion, walking on the streets of gold. Because, you know, you've got to take the Bible literally. Um, 
Would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place? Oh, sorry. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have not told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. Uh, Is this an invitation to actually go to some sort of mansion and have a room? No, because remember in chapter 2, Yeshua says that he is the, the, the temple of Yahweh, of God. And, and, uh, and what um, uh, Yeshua is saying here is that my presence is temple-like. It's the essence of the temple. Not necessarily the replacement of the temple, but the essence of the temple. And so this whole idea that, I, that, uh, that Yeshua is preparing a place, rooms, uh, where is he bringing the disciples. He's bringing them to himself. He's saying, there is every space with me in intimacy as I am with the Father. The essence of the temple, not the temple itself, is what Yeshua has been referring to as, as John has represented it. As in the physical temple, there is space for everyone, so to speak. Um, even in the Herodian Temple, there is even space for the Gentiles in the court of the Gentiles. And of course, most assumed that that structure was all the temple and not just the little sort of space in the middle that Gentiles couldn't enter. The whole thing is the temple. Even in the New Testament, you don't really know exactly where you are if, because it just says at the temple, in the temple. Um, in any case, what a powerful promise not to go to some, uh, you know, heaven up there that has no, no form or any, any it's just a complete abstraction to be separated from, from body and from you know, earth when, when that verse is not at all saying that. It's saying that in this world, in this context, Yeshua as God's presence will, will, will return and bring into the, himself those that have been uh, outside, but yet oh, eagerly awaiting. And in, uh, in, um, in anticipation of that, and in the sorrow that will inevitably come, and in the, and in the, uh, the resourcelessness of, of distance from Yeshua, Yeshua says, hey, do not worry about it. It is better for me, that I, it was better for you that I go. Why? Because in sending this person called the advocate, Yeshua is actually sending himself not to be outside of his disciples, external to his disciples, but actually in his disciples. How much more intimate could it be? Yeshua has been a another, one external to a disciple, one who who is to be followed in a very physical sense. In that, in that case, never uh, able to be with Yeshua in intimate presence. Have you ever been in a relationship where it's so intimate that you wish you could become that person? That in a sense you feel like you would want to consume that person or be consumed by that person in a, in a, in a literal sense. So intense. But you can't because humans are, are differentiated from other humans. There is, a, there is a, an inability to be intimate 
in the most in the most powerful sense, and that word powerful is the only thing I can think of right now, but there's a better word for it. But, but in the coming of the advocate, why is it better? Because Yeshua is actually coming into the presence of his disciples. Yeshua is not external. He is not over and against. He is not other. He is within. <laughs> Just mind-blowing. And then we get a list of things that is helpful to a degree, but it's, it's, they're functional, and I'm, I'm less interested in that. But if you look at verse 15 of chapter 14, if you love me and keep my commandments, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. He goes on to say the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. You have consumed him and he has you. I'll not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And then if you jump over another chapter 14 to verse 25, again a reference, all of this I have spoken while I still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit with whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not do I give a peace that the world gives, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I'm going away and I am coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father. Now, we would immediately assume that he's talking about his second coming somewhere in the, in the eschatological future. I would, I would suggest to you that in the context of this, what is Yeshua promising? He's, he's promising that when the advocate comes, he himself is the advocate, now not over and against, but within. Yeshua, the Messiah, the Son of the Father, is with us in spirit. It shows this kind of Trinitarian thing that's just embryonic here, that, that when you have the Holy Spirit, you have the Father and the Son. It was a church heresy to believe in what was a, called a modalism, where there was the Father who did certain things, the Son who did other things, and now the Spirit does things. That's, that's a heresy because the Messianic apostolic view was and is that there is complete and other, utter unity within the persons of God, expressions of the three in one, which can't be explained, but it's, 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 it's here in em embryonic form. When the advocate comes, he, he who is coming is actually Yeshua himself. No longer distant or separate, but now one in the disciple. Okay, then you go over to chapter 15, the end of it, and we get the third reference to the advocate. The advocate comes whom uh, uh, will, be, will send, sorry, the advocate comes whom will send to you, will send to you from, uh, to you from the Father, can't read anymore. The spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So there is a dual testimony here of beloved disciple and the testimony of the advocate. Turn over to chapter 16 and verse, sorry, verse 6. Rather you uh, are filled with grief because I have said these things. 
namely that he's going to go away. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Subtly notice that it was the Father who sends the advocate, but it's now Jesus. I will send the advocate. There's so much sort of Trinitarian uh, um, uh, language here. It's, 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 uh, it's no wonder it developed out of a, out of a, a, a Jewish uh, thought process of, of the implication of Yeshua's presence. Then the last one, the fifth one, is just a bit under that. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now hear or bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is to come. He will glorify Me because it is from Me that He will receive what He will make known to you. It's wordy. But in the, in the essence of it, it is the, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will uh, be Yeshua's representative in his disciple. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will, will receive from me what he will make known to you. Deep breath, take it in. We have named sort of the most significant elements we could sort of think through all of the nuances of these, these roles of the advocate, but I think what is essentially needs to be underlined is that this is Yeshua in us proclaiming and testifying what Yeshua, His will is for us and for the world. And in closing, really, this is perhaps the culmination not only of this discussion, but of being the, the temple of the very person of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Notice both the Son and the Spirit are sent ones. Now this is going to blow your mind about how significant it is that we are together and how significant it is that we are present in the world for the sake of Yeshua. Post-resurrection, before that very powerful story of the uh, invitation of Thomas to touch, to put his hand into, to, to feel the wound of Jesus. Jesus comes into, Yeshua comes into the presence of the, of the disciples in the upper room, and here's what he says, verse 21. Peace be with you. Shalom upon you. As the Father has sent me. As the Father has sent me. One more time. As the Father has sent me. Is it not clear that that is one of the key implications of the Gospel of John? That, that Yeshua has been sent by the Father for His people for the sake of the cosmos. For God so loved the world that He gave, that He sent the Son. That the Son is the very, the very visible representation of the unseen God. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God but the one and the only Son who is Himself God 
and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. That's Yeshua. That's what he is sent to be in this world. The very person of the unseen God. As one has said, you want to know what God looks like, look at Yeshua. That's God. That one is now saying at the end of this gospel, as the Father has sent me, I send you. Now being filled with the Spirit of the Messiah, having been filled with the Holy Spirit, which is then named in the next verse, and with that he breathed on them, Spirit Ruach, make sure you have brushed your teeth and taken, uh, you know, significant care and making sure when you breathe, you know, you don't actually kill somebody, you bless them. But I'm sure, I'm sure Yeshua had never had bad breath because he was God and I can't imagine God ever had bad breath. So, you know, no way that Yeshua could have had bad breath because he was God. Sarcasm. Rhetoric, uh, irony, uh, things we don't really appreciate very much. Uh, um, he breathed on them and, and he said, receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The breath of God as was the created force of God's word, let there be light, and there was, is the, is the power and the presence of now Yeshua, God, in the disciples. And as the Father has sent me, so I send you in the absence of the physical Messiah, Yeshua, having been filled and possessed by his spirit that was just breathed, now the disciples are the, are the what? Go back to 118. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Is there possibly any more powerful way of, of understanding the reason we gather and are his people? Could there be any greater what's called ecclesiology than that we are God, as a community, possessed by the Messiah's Ruach in the world. We are not God, but we have been possessed. We have become His presence, the temple, the place on earth where God tangibly resides. That is why we are here today, because as a community, not as individuals, but as a community, as a congregation, we are in this neighborhood, in this city, and in this world, the presence, the divine place where Yahweh's feet touch the earth. This is where we need to take the emoji of the blowing of the mind, the head blowing off, and just put it up on the screen. How little we think of ourselves. How, how, how so, so much we have minimized who we are and what we are to be. Can we, can we have the imagination of the author of John as is presented the person and work of Yeshua as our person, as our person and work? Could we imagine that our work is not simply ancillary 
or, or, or uh, adjunct of the mission of Yeshua, God, a partner, so to speak, but not the presence of God, could we imagine that that is not what the community of Yeshua, the people of Yeshua Messiah are? John is true. We are so much more than that. And if John is true, then whatever it means to be evangelistic is less our, our trying to convince people to believe and more to be his presence that draws people to his temple. Did the temple have like evangelists that went out into the diaspora and tried to convince people of the significance of the temple? I think not because the temple didn't need Promotion. It didn't need a slick vacuum cleaner salesman approach. All it needed was to be what it is and was. Interestingly then, and, and I'll just close with this, because it gets to the mission of our, um, of our being the people of Messiah. John's conception of what we would call evangelism is not... Uh, uh, um, um, is not uh, centripetal. I was trying to remember that word, centripetal. It doesn't sort of swing out. It's centrifugical. It's that we are such the representation of God that it draws people to us. There might be something of a going out because we have to be present, but it's a going out to be the presence of God that draws the people who, with whom he has been working. It is word, of course. It is deed, certainly. But what is important to our presence as God, his representatives, not simply as, again, ancillary, but in fact, his representatives who is himself, is to just be. Isn't that powerful? Okay, one last verse. I keep saying I'm wrapping up this, but this is literally it. I promise. In John chapter 3, we heard it read yesterday. The passage begins with the other, obviously famous for God so loved the world. Of course, most of us then stop there because, you know, what else could you, do you need to say? Um, but if you sort of allow yourself to just come down a bit more to verse 19, I think you'll now see this much more clearly. And this is then the mission of the Ecclesia of Messiah. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. The verdict is that light has come into the world sent by God, now possessed by the Messiah's people. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. The reason our neighbors, those who live around us and with us, don't come to the light is because they choose not to. Whether it's consciously or unconsciously, I don't, don't want to necessarily say that they've ever thought about it. That's, that's, not a, that's not a claim I can make. I don't know people's spirits. But in the theological interpretation of the, of the, uh, of the, the, the lack of or the, the sparse number of people in the time of Yeshua on earth, John 
makes the theological interpretation that they don't come because they don't want to be exposed. They are not drawn to the light. They're like, they're like uh, roaches that when the light comes on, they scurry into the corners. No, don't take that as a pejorative. I'm just trying to illustrate that. Now, on the other hand, and in sort of in, um, again, just powerfully true, those who love the truth come to the light. That they may be seen plainly what God has done in them. That's not what my translation says. My translation, unfortunately, says that they might have, they might, or sorry, it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. But the, the, the Greek behind it is not so straightforward, and it, it, is, it could easily be rendered, they come into the light because God wants to be seen as working in and through them already. We don't, we don't tell people about the gospel and then they come to the light. They come to the light because in some sense there is already gospeling going on. They come to the light because they want to be seen as, again, consciously or unconsciously in this case, they want to acknowledge in the light, in the presence of Yeshua's presence. They want to come and be a part of that light. When we think about what we are to be in the world, John tells us that we are to be a light that centrifugically draws people with whom God is working to that light, to be exposed as what is true of them. God is at work. God is at work, and we're largely unaware, and we don't expect it, we don't look for it, but God is at work, and while we won't know with whom he is working, we should be paying attention and be aware that every day, every person that we have contact with, God might be, might be drawing and speaking the gospel to them invisibly, but nevertheless truly and concretely, and your presence as a member of the body of Yeshua could be the, the person who draws out of them what is happening in them. Don't take random and casual contact as casual contact. May we assume that the reason why we are in relationship is because God is at work in those with whom we are related. There's no consequence. There's no, sorry, there's no coincidences in a worldview that believes God is always sustaining and preserving and involved and in uh, immediate relationship to his, to what is his. Um, so as we close, and I've gone a long time, but as we close, the invitation of the Gospel of John is that as Yeshua was sent, and all the things Yeshua did, said, and was as the, as the Son of the Father, so are we. So are we. And as we live and as we are in the world, our way of being, not as so much as individuals, but as a community of Messiah, may we see our presence as light before those with whom 
God is working. May we keep that awareness ever present in our minds and occasionally venture to a, in a curiosity in another person, not to tell them something, but to invite them to name something. It's a difference. John's sense of evangelism is not me telling you something. It's, it's me curiously asking what is true about that other person. And through the curiosity, perhaps, a conscious light will emerge where they come to that aha moment, perhaps like that man born blind. But by, by the end of the event, he's a devoted, public, demonstratively embodied witness, and he didn't even realize it was happening. Let's pray. Father, Yeshua promises us that when we ask anything in your name, because we are your people, because we are, in fact, intimate with you, that you will answer our prayers. The, the, the risk that that invites us to test you, to put ourselves in a place where we actually need you to show up, may we be those people who take the risk of actually needing the deliverance, the power that is available to us as we live a cross-deathed, virtuous presence in the world which draws those with whom you are working into a conscious, public, demonstratively embodied witness to the love you have for your people whom you've created and the beautiful world that has been twisted out of your dear, beautiful hands and has been, has been cut, has been diced, has been pushed to, uh, to, to, to no longer reflect what is true about them as your image bearers. May, may that become the evidence in resurrection of your power to heal and to redeem those who have come to know you and have, have courageously entered that light as Messiah's people. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen.